You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. This is Vicki Robin. This is Julian. This is Kirsten. This is Natalie. And you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. We've got the elephant in the room at the table. <laughs> Thank God I love elephants. <laughs> My mother's rejection from Northwestern University in the early 1960s was one line. Sorry, we met our Jewish quota this year. So growing up in Evanston, Illinois... I lived close to black people. I lived close to Hispanic people. I went to a school and we all sat together at the lunch table. We all hung out in downtown Evanston together and shopped at the same stores. It was pretty good. When I went to college at the University of Michigan, everything changed. I'm going to use the bad stereotypes right here. Pretty much the white people were mostly rednecked prejudiced, and racist. And pretty much the Black people were militant and angry, and the two did not mix well. In fact, in the midst of the seething underbelly of campus discontentment, there was one day a year where both parties came together peacefully for lectures and mutual discussion. Martin Luther King Day. In this current time of racial and social turmoil, I'd like to do the same here, Martin Luther King Day 2021, on Earn and Invest. Julian and Kirsten are the dynamic husband and wife duo behind the Rich and Regular platform and blog as well as the YouTube series Money on the Table. Julian Kirsten, welcome back to Earn and Invest. Thanks for having us. Always a pleasure, sir. It is always a pleasure talking to you guys. Natalie Torres Haddad is a bilingual speaker, international award-winning author, and financial and mental health advocate. Natalie, this is your first time on the podcast. Is that right? Yes. Thank you for having me. You are on my list of people that I kept on saying, why haven't I had her on yet? So I'm glad that we finally have you on an episode. And Vicki Robin is the acclaimed co-author of Your Money or Your Life, as well as a newly minted podcaster. Vicki, tell us about what could possibly go right. Oh, thank you. Hi. <laughs> and yeah, so what could possibly go right is an inquiry I began just as the pandemic hit, because it's sort of an ironic title about like, what else could go wrong? But it, I've been interviewing people I call cultural scouts, people who see far, act courageously on behalf of the common good. You know, people that I've admired for years, artists, activists, et cetera, and uh, asking them this just one question interview, 20 minutes, what could possibly go right? And asking them to like peer into the murk and tell us what you see, not what should go right, not what wrong, what went wrong, but like what's happening here, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it ain't exactly clear. And so it's been an amazingly rich, amazingly rich and transformative process for me to uh, listen. I like that statement to peer into the murk. And in fact, today on Martin Luther King Day, I'd like to do the same thing. Kirsten, I want to start with you. Let's look back to 2008. It was historic, the election of Barack Obama. And let's compare that to the breach of the Capitol last week. Do you think they're connected? <laughs> yeah, they're definitely connected. <laughs> I think Ta-Nehisi Coates, which is one of my favorite authors and writers, 
even though his reading or his writing really challenges me, uh, talks about this extensively in, in his books, We Were Eight Years in Power. I mean, what you're seeing is kind of the bubbling over of white rage and people who are vested in a system that is changing at a faster pace than what they're comfortable with. And America has a long history of dealing with discomfort using violence. And so it's, to me, it's not surprising, right? I think we all had our estimates around the timing of when this would happen, when, when violence would become part of our everyday lexicon. And, you know, it's just, it's happening now. I think the pandemic somewhat accelerated it. Julian, we all kind of giggled as I asked that first question, but does it surprise you that so many people don't connect the racial undertones with what happened in the Capitol last week? No, it doesn't. It doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, I think, you know, we give this a lot of thought. I certainly give this a lot of thought and Kirsten and I talk about this quite often, but, you know, a a lot of this, in addition to just rage, is just mass miseducation, right? We've completely dropped the ball in terms of truly telling a diverse set of stories and sort of letting there be a commonly accepted truth uh, that everyone can kind of agree on. And we've kind of just allowed everyone to just believe their own truth over the years. And that's really kind of compounded and allowed us to um, really divide ourselves or easily be divided. And so it's actually not surprising. And and, and the second thing I'll say is I've I've been spending so much time reflecting over, particularly over the last week. And I, I just find myself being more and more grateful. And I think back to my corporate career, I spent a lot of time in, in, in parts of the country that I, you know, admittedly called, the underarm of, of, of America or, you know, what they call the Rust Belt or flyover country. And I say that, you know, admitting that I was biased and had my own beliefs. But quite honestly, I had some horrible moments while I was there, but I survived them. And I looked back and I learned a lot about the people, even the good people. I learned a lot about who they are. I saw with my own eyes what has happened to the middle of the country. And so a lot of that has shaped my thinking. And I just, I know a lot of people don't really get an opportunity to see that or to meet with those people. And so I've I've moved, I've lived in the North, I've lived in the South, and I've spent a lot of time in the middle. And because of that, I'm really grateful for the perspective. So all that to say, I am not surprised uh, in the least. Natalie, compare and contrast. What Julian was talking about is kind of that miseducation or lack of education, yet Barack Obama was elected in 2008. Kamala Harris is elected for 2021. How do those two facts fit together? Like, how can you see that in a world where we also have the storming of the Capitol? Such a big question. I'm like, how do I start (laughs) answering that? I'm like, all all these different thoughts. I mean, if you, if you think back, I mean, history, if you look at our history in this country, everything does trickle down to, it's the cause and effect, right? I, I agree completely with what they're saying about perspective. I've worked in many Midwest, East Coast, um, I'm from California, and I'm not surprised by any of this either, unfortunately. And what I mean by it's a trickle effect, I'm actually an immigrant too. So I was born in El Salvador during a civil war which was fully funded by the U.S., which is a whole nother podcast for. But for my family and I, we had to check in these last few weeks because it's almost been 40 years that majority of my family fled during a civil war there. And seeing what's happening now, my parents are like, great, is this happening all over again, right? Myself and children, we were children when when we migrated, but we're seeing these things that I think a lot of people growing up here so that that could never happen in the U S I'm like, that's happening all over the world. And when we come from trauma, it's, it, it, it adds more trauma. And I've always been grateful being here. I've seen like, even just hearing you talk about Julian, how you, you lived in, in certain other States. I've seen that too, where I've had a beautiful experiences or, but I'm not going to lie when I travel there, especially for work, I'm always afraid, especially when I'm traveling by myself. I'm, I'm Latina, right? I'm a woman of color. I stand out as well. So I think when we see now people in power, people in place, people that have the actual opportunity to, to use their voice, like Kamala, we see president Obama all the time, use his voice. It, it it's, it's a trickle effect and people don't expect that our perspectives won't make a difference on what we're trying to say. Absolutely, it's going to. But we're also trying to keep it in a sense where 
we want to educate other people on not only the past experience because we don't want it to repeat again. And we also want people to understand that it's an awareness that we all need to have, that it's trauma that has affected everyone. I grew up in a predominantly brown and black community, Inglewood, California. So for me, a lot of this is not a, a um, it's nothing new. And as a child, I was 10 when the LA riots, we called it the uprising then. That is just what I saw living in my community. So when people are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened. I'm like, you did not grow up in my neighborhood. So that's, that's something that I think is, it's just, it's just surfacing right now. It's just surfacing. Vicky, Natalie brings up a few interesting points. One is that history repeats itself. The other is this idea of generational trauma. You lived through the civil rights movements of the 60s and the 70s. And it almost begs the question, is this a continuation of what happened then? Or are these separate events? I'm having trouble separating if maybe for some of the population, the struggle has continued from the 60s on to now, whereas for a whole other part of the population, they see these as two separate or maybe even unconnected happenings. Wow. Well, number one, just because I'm 75, it uh, doesn't mean that I have any expertise about what happened in the 60s and 70s. <laughs> and I was I was of the ilk in the 70s. I did the back to the land. You know, I did the sustainability track. I didn't do the political track. So my opinions may or may not have a lot of depth. But my view is that early civil rights was basically a petition for power. You know, it was like, we don't, we need the Voting Rights Act. We need, you know, we need the dignity. We, you know, sort of like, it was like the ground level. And there's been a lot that's come out of it where there's sort of permissible people of color who've risen up and become the spokespeople, but it actually hasn't been transformative. It's, you know, I mean, if you take a look at, the, the movies, ads, you know, I mean, everything now has sort of performative black people in it, you know, so, <laughs> but, and sports is like, you know, it's like something almost horrible when you, when you actually step back and you look at, you know, rich white men own black bodies and are making money from them, you know, and holding them up as this sort of narrow place is sort of like, well, you can do drugs or you can do sports, you know, it's, so it's not been transformative as far as I can tell. And also it, what I think is different now is that now white people are involved. You know, it's like so close to home that you can't like, there is no sidelines anymore. And, and, and maybe even the rage right now is that, you know, the, the, the sort of like rabble, the right wing rabble, is like still trying to be on the sidelines and they can't, you know, it's like this space in which they can assert their own, you know, way of life and dignity is way smaller now. And so it's a huge pushback. Yeah. I mean, I think since, since the murder of George Floyd, the public lynching, it's like finally white privileged white people have gone like, Oh, (laughs) you know, I, I see now that, and I think this is, this applies to the fire movement as well. You know, we we now see, you know, we've turned us a little bit of a blind eye to the injustice in the society that allows us to do what we do, you know, to become the smart people who figure out the system and 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 work our way out of the the sort of like the burden, the daily, you know, we are not essential workers anymore. You know, we're, we're, we're toiling in the fields of the intellect. And so I think it's just a big reckoning of solidarity. I did an interview with Reverend Lennox Yearwood, who of the hip hop caucus for my podcast. And he basically called out the environmental movement because he's, he's doing the uh, climate activism with young people. And he said, you know, you guys did not form common cause with us when Trayvon Martin was murdered. You didn't see that this was your issue. You still allowed yourself to be, you know, like like presenting polar bears as, as the inspiring image. And that has been nigh on to fatal to the climate movement because the, the justice movement is where the moral ground is. 
You know, mm. the climate movement is, could be just preferential. You know, we'd rather have a different, you know, we'd rather not crash our world. But so it's, I find this is a very challenging, you know, as Kirsten said, you know, I'm reading a lot of things that are, are really challenging how I've put together my identity and just poking big holes in it. Kirsten, what Vicky talks about is it seems to me like there's been judicial improvements. Those were big, especially in the 60s and 70s. Yet the social change, the hearts and minds maybe hadn't followed along through. George Floyd was a turning point, I believe, at least a little bit in our country. Do you think the Black Lives Matter movement was that transformative change that we've been waiting for? It's hard to say. I think a lot of it is is compounded by the fact that we are free from the distraction of work and so that people are actually paying attention. To Natalie's point, the topic of Black Lives Mattering has been around for years. <laughs> the, the streets of California, you know, rioted when Rodney King was beaten by police officers decades ago. And so it's not something that is a new issue. I just think that people are paying attention more these days because they have to and because we black people are demanding it more. I think we are we're starting to find our voices and making sure that, you know, we're clear to any of our white friends and family that are in our lives that, you know, we matter and that you need to say something or we're not actually friends. We're not actually family. Julian, what happened in Georgia, you guys are Atlanta residents, what happened in Georgia feels transformative. Yes. Stacey Abrams feels transformative. Yes. That's, that's my wife, by the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who claps for Stacey? I'm about to answer your question. Go ahead. You know, I, I, I didn't actually, I, I, I died there. I didn't get a question out. <laughs> Has something changed, Julia? I think we, and by we, I think Democrats won an election. I think it's just that simple. I don't know that we can start talking about change yet in Georgia. We won an election. There's a lot of work to be done. I can tell you as someone that's lived in Georgia for 20 years, I I certainly did not expect it. I have some friends who are very much politically engaged and you know, they they text me pretty much at every juncture. What's going on? What does it feel like? What's happening? What do you think about Keisha Lance Bottoms? You know, is she going to be Biden's you know, in Biden's cabinet? All of these things. I I, I am shocked, and and quite honestly, I, I want to say the numbers were really really slim, right? And mm-hmm. so what they won by, we had to do a runoff election. So I, I think it's an indicator. But going back to an earlier part of the conversation, I am also old enough now to remember feeling quite hopeful when Barack Obama was elected. And so I'm now wise enough not to get too excited or to believe that more work doesn't need to be done in order for us to actually create some sustainable change in the state of Georgia. Natalie, when we talk about Stacey Abrams, I feel like we've entered the decade, if not the century of the woman of color. I think women of color played a huge role in these current elections. And I'm wondering how you feel the women's rights movement dovetails with the civil rights movement. Are they playing off each other? Have they helped each other? Are they different movements? Yes, yes, and yes. I think they <laughs> I think it's helped. I think it's elevated our voices to be heard as women. I think there's still different movements, unfortunately, on the real the reality because especially and I'm not obviously speaking for all women of color, but I belong to a lot of women of color spaces and we talk about this all the time where we might have colleagues, family and friends that are white, but you know, saying that they want the equality for all women yet they lack to see the real injustices or the injustices that happen for women of color as far as not just we're talking about when this is obviously a podcast about money. Um, we get paid much less, right? We have a lot less fi- uh, financial power. So, you know, whenever it comes to making real change, you have to have the money too, right? And so I think it it, it has helped in a way, but I think we still need to have more of this dialogue, this conversation to understand each other and really support each other too. Because if we're particularly just talking about like a women move, women's movement is 
how do we affect real change for all groups, for all cultures, for, for class as well? Because my, my problem or my situation can be completely different than a white woman's, right? So this is something we always talk about in LA specifically. We have Skid Row. We have, I mean, cities of tents right now, especially during a recession. This is something we saw the last time around as well. But I can, any on a given day, drive down the street, blocks from where I live. I'm not that far from South Central. And you'll have people asking for money to help for a funeral expense. And I see my, my, my female counterparts that are white. They're like, I've never seen that. And I go, well, because you've never been around communities. If you don't live in those communities or surrounded by those communities, you're not affected by how little things like that can really affect an entire family. So if you can't even take care of yourself, chances are you can't take care of other people or your community, right? You'll do your best. But I think if we're looking at we want women to be more inclusive and be more elevated and our voices being heard is we have to do our best to have this dialogue, to try to get on the same page and understand that my privileges are not the same as a white woman's privilege. And, and especially when we talk about, we're talking about Martin Luther King day, we're talking about systematic programs in place in our school systems that affected all of our black and Brown communities and will generations to come. It's not something that's fixed in one generation. I'm a lot more hopeful now, especially when I see women of color in, 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 in office and with financial power, because I feel that they'll make some kind of a move. But it's also a lot of pressure just to leave it on one group or one person to make that change. It takes it takes an effort of all of us to learn from, from our mistakes and hopefully become better at it. I have a question for Natalie and, and for everybody. I see the issue of class being given a lot less attention than the issue of race. And that, do you, do, you got, do you see that we're in a class war as well as a race war? It's because when you put a class lens or as Isabel Wilkinson said, you know, cast lens, then, then you see that, you know, the black people and in, in, in sort of the redneck class, if you will, you know, the poor whites are being being pitted against each other, which is a very convenient thing mm-hmm. for the people who hold money and power. So but I don't hear that discussed that much. You know, you're right. I, I that's something we've. I have a lot with my own family members. I have 26 cousins just from my mom's side. So we have a long chain of constantly just checking in on each other. And a lot of us live in different states. Your point, I think, is right on. We have family members, and especially in the Midwest, where they are surrounded. It's classism. They're, they're friends that are white. They're If they're poor white, it's, it's that where they have the same issues. They don't see the, they don't see that they think that they have that white entitlement. So I think it's it's kind of a political way that people will push it towards their agenda. I think classism is 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 a huge topic, especially when it comes to color. It obviously affects people of color, but you might have less education, you might have less um, exposure to some of these conversations or people within those groups. So yeah, I think that's also a, a huge factor. Look at Brazil classism within just a street because it's, it is, you know, not necessarily just color. Yeah. I mean, if you want to look at the inequities in society, all you have to do is wait for the next tragedy and see who bears the fallout. Right. Mm. So it's pretty straightforward in the sense to say, okay, well, who really is bearing the brunt of the COVID pandemic and recession? And we see African-Americans, we see women of color, and we also see poor people in all societies, people who are out there doing some of that necessary work for society, working in the meatpacking plants, et cetera. It does definitely beg the question, are we dealing with personal responsibility versus a need for true systemic change? And I think that I think that's part and parcel of what we talk about a lot in the fire movement, which I think is what Vicky was talking about, the financial independence retire early. It's very easy to say, oh, all you need to do is save and be more frugal and put more money away. It's much harder to say that we currently have a system that's set up in such a way that doesn't necessarily benefit you. And when we start using the bigger you of you being huge swaths of people, 
the only way we're going to help that bigger group of you is to change the system. We can try as much as we want to teach you how to be frugal, how to make more money, how to become an entrepreneur. Julian, talk about that a little bit. How much of what's going on feels like personal responsibility versus the need for overall governmental change? It's both. I think a lot of the, depending on who you're talking about, but, you know, we specialize in, in specifically considering that we're writing a book, sort of catering to that community. We specialize and have spent much more time sort of analyzing and thinking about uh, the Black community and all of the things that impact that. What we're actually recommending, you know, in our sort of invitation to this movement is, in a sense, an ask of radical self-responsibility in the absence of there being a social safety net and in the absence of corporations and businesses coming to an agreement to actually uphold their statements about making or employees being their number one assets, right? I think it's safe to say we now know that a lot of that is marketing and not necessarily truth or, or an actual commitment. And so what we're recommending to those who can, right, because not everyone can, that, hey, this is actually your best option, or I should say at least a viable option for you. Let's not make the assumption that you can maintain a steady income and employment rate over a certain period of time because you actually don't have that privilege and there's data to support that. And so this is the approach that you should consider taking um, to make sure that you have your fair share in terms of equity of this country or of the market. The other thing that we say there, not to just completely get into the book, is that I also recognize how imperfect of a solution that is. That doesn't solve everything. But in the interim, you know, particularly when we're thinking about fragile communities, we don't really have the luxury being patient or waiting or, you know, even arguably the patience to, 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 to negotiate in some cases. Poor people don't really have that luxury to think about the long term. You got to think about right now. And so it, it, it's both. I mean, you know, there is no easy button. And I want to say, going back to Vicky's point about classism versus the race issue, I think part of the reason why, you know, classism, which I believe is true, uh, the bigger issue isn't sort of occupying as much of the media airplay is because it's just not convenient. You really can't boil that down to something that is easy to understand. It is an incredibly complex issue. And in order to have even an attractive conversation, you've got to assume that the audience and the people involved uh, are equipped to have that. And, and, and as I said before, like we are tragically miseducated. And so to have that conversation in a way that's meaningful, we've got to understand the dynamics of history and race and politics and legislation and economics and all of these other things. And, and most people, unfortunately, just aren't equipped to do that. And so they, they pick the subject or the thing uh, that is convenient for them, or they pick the conversations that have already been decided because other people have a stake in that, meaning the media, and they just push that out and they just run with it. And that is how people learn today. And so it, it's just, it's it's incredibly complex and, and and you know that. But I think that's my point of view in terms of why one conversation hasn't necessarily uh, received as much light or attention is because it's just, it, it's it's too complex, it's too big, and it's much more convenient uh, to zero in on any one thing that people can actually see and more easily identify with. Yeah, I'll just add that in addition to classism not being convenient, it's also highly subjective. I think back in you know the 60s and 70s, it was really easy to distinguish class lines by income. But as income has eroded and how people are making less money when you factor in inflation, people have added all kinds of other qualifiers of what makes them middle class. And so now you have highly educated, low paid people who consider themselves middle class. Or you've got people in California who make $250,000 a year versus people in Atlanta who make you know $60,000 a year, all considering themselves middle class. And so when you've got all that intersectionality, it makes it very hard for a class to stand together and say, this is what we believe in, which yeah. I think is very similar to the FIRE community, which is why we haven't made strong political stances, because although we all have money or are all money savvy, we don't necessarily agree with the same social contracts and constructs for our, for our country. And so 
I think the challenge with class is very similar to the challenge with race. It's a social construct. And the minute the fabric of society starts to change, that construct becomes very, very fragile. And it becomes something that you don't build your ideals off of or build policy off of because then it's made up. (laughs) I mean, eventually you start to realize it's all made up. And so that's when, to Julian's point earlier, there's no sole truth for our for our country, we're looking for it right now. I think that's the new line from all the politicians is we're searching for the soul of our country right now. <laughs> like we're looking for it. And so as we're trying to figure it out, you know, it's interesting to see the role that these tools and technologies are playing in shaping that narrative. I mean, we've we've seen some big changes in the last weeks with the former president's <laughs> Twitter accounts and other accounts being shut down because at some point someone decided they didn't want that to be part of the new narrative. They don't want that to be able to go far and wide. And so it's really interesting what our role is as content creators and kind of shapers of the space. You know, what should we be talking about right now? What kind of conversations should we be having? Should we stumble through, you know, awkward conversations like this? Or should we stay silent until we have a very firm opinion? It's like, no, we have to keep talking and figure out, like, where do we stand, even if we disagree? Like, we might learn something that eventually shifts the opinion or we'll at least learn to operate in a world where everybody doesn't agree. Thank you. <laughs> um, you can hear me like I'm trying to breathe, breathe, breathe heavy because one, I'm like, I totally, you're speaking to, you're preaching to the choir, obviously, but I think that's what it is. All of us here, we, we have a, a platform. We have, we can create content and that's something I always feel I'm really extremely challenged with where it's like, do I stay silent? Do I not share my opinions, my experiences, education, all that stuff, because also we get coined, we get into this, we become this token person. If you look at my calendar this past 2020 year, how many times was I the only Latina on the panel? I was the only woman of color. And yet, and and I'm always going to be asked the questions again, like, oh, what do you think about gender wage gap? What do you think about people? As if one, I can't answer for everyone. But second, it's kind of like, that's not my expertise. You have me on here because I'm talking about financial literacy. I'm talking about money. So it's kind of like, that's the challenge where I also want to use that voice because I get constant messages every single day from people telling me their sad stories, their difficulties, their challenges. And I'm like, I have somewhat of a platform, right? Do I use it or do I don't? And that's why I was like breathing, hearing you. Cause I'm like, yes, you're saying what I want to say, but the majority of the time I hold what I want to say because <laughs> that fear also, you know, I, I think I always say it's some immigrant mentality where we're always scared. My mom always says, always present yourself in a positive light because people are always watching you. They expect you to fail. They expect you to, to mess up because stereotypes obviously exist there already. So it's kind of, that's still a challenge for me. There's many times where I just, I hold it and biting my tongue rather not say anything because it's, it's a consistent where I'm, I don't always get asked or hired to, to speak on my expertise. It's more because I happen to play that token or I I can, you know, for companies to feel good about themselves sometimes. So I think that's something I struggle with. I don't know how I'll overcome that, but it's something like you just said it, we kind of, that's a question we have for the day. Do I speak or do I not? You speak and you raise your rates. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Every single time. I'm constantly saying, nope, and here's my fee. And I thank my agent for that because there's no way I could always do this by myself. <laughs> hey, everybody. I just wanted to interrupt Vicki, Natalie, Kirsten, and Julian for a moment to say happy MLK Day. This will be the only interruption in the episode. No ads, no promos. I just want their words to stick with you. However, at the end, after the show closes, be sure to stick around for the outtakes. There's a few minutes of us just chatting. It's worth a listen. I hope you have a great day. And once again, happy MLK Day. There's so much here now. We're just like we've we've just we've 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 got the elephant in the room at the table. <laughs> Thank God I love elephants. <laughs> That's the quote of the podcast, right there. <laughs> that is definitely so, the opening so, line. <laughs> so several things. Oh God, there's so much here. Number one, I've noticed for a long time that psychologically people in this country, we we cannot talk about class in this country because we're supposed to be a classless society where there's opportunity for everybody to rise. So 
Poor people feel ashamed. People in the bottom 20%, let's call them, feel ashamed. They want to be middle class. They don't want to be seen as low class, as you say, you know, stereotypes, you know, so I'm middle class. And then people on the top don't want to be vilified for their privilege. So they just, oh, I'm middle class. They just keep moving the goalpost of middle class. You know, so like, like, no, quarter million dollars a year, that's not middle class. <laughs> so I think these are some things we need to call out. The other thing is that class may not be the right indicator. I think economic injustice is the indicator and, and the, one of the most disgusting things to watch during this time has been the roaring market as people suffer. And we need to name it, name it, name it, name it, name it. That is disgusting. That is capitalism. That is the rats as they leave the sinking ship, taking all the plumbing and, you know, emptying the pantry. It's, it is, it is, you know, what they call late stage capitalism. It's just, you know, it's crashing empire. It's the wealthy people trying to, to get everything they can. And of course, we're all programmed. We're all in that system. I wouldn't blame anybody here for thinking, where should I invest in? You know, where's the opportunity? So that's what's led me to, and I've resisted this for a long time because I I thought that there was another way. But I think we have to name that capitalism itself actually is a driver. You know, capitalism itself is a driver and we can do compassionate capitalism or socially responsible capitalism. And, and in fact, we're stuck in a capitalist system. And until there's a systemic shift, this is where we are. So we get to name it and, you know, operate with as much integrity inside it. But we have, we just have to say that this is not how traditional societies have operated. You know, this sort of the rise of Western civilization, the rise of the banking system, the rise of like, oh, we can create money out of thin air so we can go exploit more places and pay back, you know, the original loan and then go exploit more places and pay back the original loan. You know, I mean, the, the, the you know, the Dutch and English bankers figured out like the most amazing Ponzi scheme. So we're, we're sort of at the end of that story grappling with what do we do about this because there isn't a model for economic justice yet that actually people would go like, oh, duh, you know, I want to be in that world. I don't, I want to be in that world. And, and it looks safe for me to jump ship. Julian, this reminds me of a conversation that we had the last time I had you both together on the podcast. How tight is that connection, therefore, between civil rights and economic injustice and financial equity. I mean, you and I, we talked about this idea that the civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s really didn't financially move the needle for Black people. Maybe it did judicially. Maybe it changed the laws. But can you have civil rights without financial improvements for a good portion of the population? You can, but you, you can't have equity. Right. And I think what we're talking about now is, is the, a degree of, of happiness that one can reasonably assume is possible for themselves uh, but you, in this country. But you really there's a limit without having equity, without having a certain degree of wealth uh, or even access to resources. And I think that's sort of where we are. And I think obviously the civil rights movement was instrumental in you know making progress. But there's a gentleman by the name of. John Hope Bryant, uh, who says uh, something to the effect of he's a, he's a writer and also runs an organization called Operation Hope, speaker, entrepreneur. And he, and he says something to the effect of, of that movement being great for c- civil rights, but now the fight is for silver rights. I mean, it's a really clever way of saying, hey, you know, and, and trying to fulfill arguably the the mission of Dr. King towards the latter part of his life, which was really about the elimination of poverty. Right. And it wasn't even just for uh, black people. It was just for poor people. He saw this coming 60 years ago. Right. And so that's 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 essentially what it is. So it's progress. Uh, It's great. There are certain things that atrocities that that no longer that don't occur uh, in the same way or with the same degree of frequency. But to Vicky's point, you could argue that the state of inequality that we see 
uh, today economically is in itself a form of violence against poor communities. I mean, it, it is horrific what is happening in terms of unemployment and wealth destruction in, in, in these families. And I mean, it's, it, it happens and compounds every single day, right? And so it may not necessarily be at the hands of a gun or a whip, but debt is, is a really, really dangerous tool. Uh, and that is, is quite honestly one of the most, you know, no one says leading cause of death being debt, right? But it certainly plays a role you know, when you start talking about all of the things that money impacts and the role that it plays in terms of, of life. And so all that to say, we've made progress, but there's significantly much more progress still left to be made. Kirsten, it does make me wonder if the financial equity is the missing puzzle piece, maybe the thing that does connect the classism to the civil rights struggle the piece, again, that we just don't seem to yet be solving, even with the electoral and judicial gains that we've had over the last few decades. Yeah. I mean, I think it is. It's obviously just my personal opinion, but it's the same conversation we're having now after last week's riots or insurrection or whatever you want to call it, is how do you have forgiveness and moving on without accountability? And in a world where Black people toiled and built the country for hundreds of years without any sort of payment, were promised 40 acres and a mule and never received it, still haven't received any sort of reparations and has, you know, it's all been mapped back to this wealth gap of, you know, everybody else having a head start on us. It's very difficult to not connect financial progress to civil rights, especially in a country where you have to pay for things that I think should be rights, like access to healthcare and education. And so for me, it's the two are kind of tied together. I I just want to bring up the S word um, of socialism that, you know, fundamentally when you come to economic justice, my theories are socialist, you know, not, you know, democratic socialism. And that basically we need to create a pump that takes that skims off the top and gives to the bottom or else the society falls apart. It's like a low synergy society is exactly what we have where wealth is sucked up to the top and it really doesn't matter. The underclass is just allowed to um, perish. So there are tools for that pump. And it's like, there's, there's, you know, the Jubilee year, whatever you call it, the potlatch, the, you know, there are tools that other societies have used that understand that hanging together is our survival. And so what are the tools? I mean, I'm sort of a, I'm sort of in, in heart and soul, I'm Bernie, but in policy, I'm Elizabeth. You know, <laughs> I think there are, you know, reasonable, priorly used tools in this society to do this job. And it won't solve the disrespect. It won't solve racism. It won't solve aversion. But, you know, to have a, you know, a national minimum wage to have a, you know, basic income, you know, and I'm like, I'm like, completely a fan of universal basic income tied to universal service, you know, where you put in your year, you know, whether it's, you know, planting trees or, you know, training in the military or working in a social service agency, you put in your social service year, your service to society year, and then society just basically, you get a basic income, complete Medicare for all or access to sickness care. That is absolutely, I mean, we, we may not solve everything, but we have a lot of tools right now. I was going to use a bad word. Um, (laughs) We have a lot of tools right now that if we could implement them politically, that would work on, Oh God, wealth redistribution. That is like, that is like the third rail of this country. So I like to bring the topic up because it's insoluble and I enjoy those things. But I mean, we, that's what Bernie's done is he's raised this question and, you know, or like forgiving debt or like making sure there's free education for people and, and, and considering an, an educated population, the country's wealth, not the country's, not like some sort of horrible burden, you know, of people who want to cheat the system. So, I mean, <laughs> so these are my true colors at this level, but we have tools 
and the conversation about implementing those tools as, as toxic as it's going to be is going to start to, to like rupture the adhesions in our society, the aversive responses to redistributive wealth or, you know, so I just will toss this into our conversation as another sort of piece of the very complex puzzle. It's, it's a very complicated, exactly like what, what solutions do you start with? And one of my undergraduate degrees is in international business and I lived in other countries as well. So for me, that's something that I, I would look at how other countries serve their own people. And we're talking about universal healthcare. We're talking about basic income. There's just, now there's a lot more information out there as far as like documentaries go, like to be able to educate people here in the country to say like, these are things that we can implement. What was, ha- what has worked and what hasn't worked. I, I'm all on, on the same format as all of you, like believing on what we, we should have in order for everyone to start off with just an equal start and, and understanding that there are certain responsibilities that we have. I mean, all of us here on this platform, luckily we do come from a place of privilege, right? To have this type of opportunity to, to speak for maybe not necessarily just for ourselves, but for our communities that we come from, right? And I always look at that as far as, I always tell people my high school experience was like the rich dad, poor dad experience where I grew up and I lived in Inglewood. And then my parents sent me to private school for high school because of the riots and everything. And having that insight on both places, I'm like, why can't we incorporate both to be able to help, um, especially those that can't help themselves or don't have those resources. And I think that's something that we we, we fail to mention half of the time where, yeah, you, earlier, Julian, you were talking about both of this is that you hear people say, well, you know, you know, I'm doing this to, to have a, a, a retirement at an early age. And for me, that always gets to me because one of, I, I love her. She's a first, my first 100K. I love, I love her content. Tori, yeah. yeah, Tori, I love her. And, but that's one of the things that I constantly get questions on. People are saying like her, her reality is completely different than ours. You know, for us, we're still taking care of our parents. If, you know, especially if they're immigrants or even if we're first, second generation, there is a very different starting point you know we call we graduate from college with a lot of debt we graduate with if we don't even if we don't graduate from college we are still coming from communities that don't have great libraries that don't have access to i mean amazing resources that literally two cities away from where i live have and we don't and so those are things that we see inequality but it's such a complex conversation and i felt we just opened up the can but i love hearing everyone else's experiences because it just kind of it's humbling and it's also it kind of makes me think like I need to work harder. I need to do better because it, it, it is, it's kind of, it is up to us as well. It seems that we forget that there are shades of gray and our country has done incredibly well when we act as a capitalist society with a good dose of social liberalism. You can have a good minimum wage. You can have cheap higher education. You can have high taxes on the wealthy. And those times in our country when we've had those things, we've actually functioned better. Julian and Kirsten, I'm going to steal a line from Vicky here. Let's talk about the future. What could possibly go right? I'll start with what could go right is greater civic engagement. I am so impressed by the young people Gen Z, Gen Alpha, using technology to get these ideas out in the world. I'm impressed by the candidates that they push forward and get elected. Even some of the ideas that we've discussed today have come from candidates that made it pretty far in their races. And it's it's even more kind of inspiring to see stories like Stacey Abrams, who lost a historic race, but channeled that rage into something productive and added, you know, 800,000 incremental votes to turn the state blue. And so it's really nice to see changes happening in our lifetime. I think before I kind of wrote off certain changes as not happening within my lifetime or, you know, when I still have all this fight in me (laughs) at this age, but it's been nice to see how young people are kind of almost, I'm not going to say they're inherently civically engaged, but they definitely have more sources to learn about how countries operate and how democratic and economic systems work that don't just come from like their teachers in school. They get to learn from people all across the world. And so they get to benefit from experiences like Natalie's and Julian's of people who have lived all over the place and can tell you like, no, we don't have cops in school over here in Europe. We don't have to pay for a doctor's appointment. I can, you know, talk to my doctor through video 
things like things that we should be able to do. Like at some point you start to look at the U.S. and be like, we must want it this way. <laughs> and the, the young people, I think, recognize that it doesn't have to be this way. And I'm what could go right is that we have really civically engaged youth that participate mm-hmm. in the government. I would say one of the things that could go right is very similar to like shifts in popular culture. I think that there could be a rise in intellectualism, dare I say, yes, and just a greater appreciation for richer dialogue. Everything doesn't have to be over the top entertaining. And so I'd love to see, and I believe it is possible, that more media conglomerates use their share of their resources devoted to more serious, thoughtful uh, conversations that you know, positively shape the culture. And as a result, you know, engage with people uh, in ways that that could lead them to take action or even hold other entities accountable. Vicki, what possibly could go right? Well, I, I just love listening to Julian and Kirsten. I'm big on, and it's another word like socialism, I'm big on moral education, I think that we have lost a moral center and part of a moral center is that there is something that we all agree is more important than our individual self-interest. And, and we've lost, you know, we've lost the power of the church to even bring up that something is a moral issue and not a pragmatic issue is sort of like a way to get yourself deplatformed. Um, is, uh, I think we, uh, yeah, that's, that's where I'm aiming. I'm aiming my attention. I interviewed Kathleen Dean Moore, who is a moral philosopher and an educator and a novelist and an author. And she quoted in the interview, Jose Ortega Gasset. And he said, basically, fundamentally is that morality is having a standard to which you can be held accountable And if you, it's not like how well you are accountable, it's that there is a standard. And if there's a lack of standard, she said, that's barbarism. And it was like, it just struck me that it's sort of like the Huns have come over the hill from within our society there. And, and I, I pray that what happened on January 6th in our capital is, is a moral reckoning. I think you can't have reconciliation without truth. And truth requires the capacity to feel shame for what you did, to stand there in the midst of the blood and go like, ah, what am I doing here? Who am I? And without that, we're not going to have a reconciliation. I think I think feeling a depth of grief and pain about some, how something you consider so beautiful, which is, you know, all men and women are created equal, et cetera, Having that desecrated, I think we're in a desecration, a desacralizing of our society, and it's severe. We are, you know, we are on a respirator on this one. We are on a respirator. And and so to me, it seems like an urgent, invisible problem. Mm. Vicky, what you say reminds me of this idea that we have to stop looking at legal as the standard for ethical. I feel right. like we decide if something is technically legal, therefore it's okay to do it. And we've allowed ourselves to live in an ethical vacuum because of it. And I see that over and over again, where we make decisions and we always use the legality as the justification. Exactly. And we have, there's something called social norms. It's like the mask mandates. There's no consequence if you don't wear a mask. Mm -hmm. So people who are trying to wear masks and keep our society safe are basically always having to argue on the edge of barbarism that, that this is something somebody else needs to do. So we, yeah, that's social, anyway, a a social sentiment. I don't know how to say it, but you're absolutely right. There's not even language for it anymore that that anybody other than the people in this conversation might agree with, you know. So that's 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 where I'm aiming my little um, boat. Natalie, tell me your optimistic look at 2021 and the future. With the saying, "What can go right," 
is that our ancestors guide us to where we're going. And I was tearing up. I didn't think I was going to start tearing up when I was hearing Kristen speak, but, you know, seeing Stacey Abrams, seeing women of color in, in, in the light right now. And I think for me, it's like, I, I look forward to the day where I don't feel like I'm the token person or that I'm looking for that person in the, in the, you know, especially when it comes to speakers, especially when it comes to our industry and finance and everything, it's, I look forward to that. Be like our ancestors worked for us to be present, to be that representation for, for all of us, because it's, we're mm-hmm. representing so many that have not been, re- that are still not being represented. And so I look, I always think about my grandmothers. I'm like what they had to overcome where I am today and I always tell people, I, my ancestors' wildest dream come true. And I look forward to knowing that things can go right, that, that will, there, there'll be that day, whether I see it or not. <laughs> Back when I was in college, during my introduction, I talked about how I really felt like nothing was going right. But the one thing that I could glom onto that did every year was that Martin Luther King day when we all sat down and had conversations that really sound a lot like this one. I hope we're moving forward. I hope these conversations are bearing fruit. I hope our best look at what possibly could go right will. And I thank you guys for coming today to talk about it on Martin Luther King Day 2021. I'd like to close this episode the way I close every episode, which is by giving you guys a chance to tell us what's up next in your life and where can we find you if we want to interact more. Vicki, tell us what's going on and where we can find you. Yeah, so you can look up on a, your podcast, whatever that thing is, what could possibly go right. And uh, so it's podcasting and video interviews sponsored by the Post Carbon Institute, postcarbon.org. And so I'm continuing that project into 2021. (laughs) It's very interesting, a question now, what could possibly go right? Also, if you want to, like, you know, listen to me haranguing about my ideas, then you go to VickiRobin.com and read my, you know, florid blog posts, (laughs) which I have a lot of fun writing. And I'm also working on a book based on what could possibly go right that I'm super excited about because it really ultimately... I love what you said. It's about being a good ancestor. How do you be the person that people look to, to to a moral and inspirational example? Julian and Kirsten, what's up next in your life and where can people find you? Yeah, right now, 150% of our time and energy is being devoted to finishing up our book. So we're a couple of weeks away from uh, wrapping up that manuscript. But even still, there's probably another year in between the day that we celebrate that and the day that it will officially be on the shelves. And so that's our big, big focus right now. Um, Immediately after that, it will be to find a quiet place somewhere (laughs) to heal (laughs) from the process. But uh, in the interim, we are certainly telling stories, sharing stories, and um, we've got tons of really, really great and interesting uh, things coming uh, this year. So a lot of that will be shared on our website, richandregular.com, as well as on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, LinkedIn, YouTube, YouTube, uh, and whatever else gets created between now (laughs) and next week. And Natalie, tell us what's going on in your life and where we can find you if we want to learn more. Yeah, you could. There's a lot going on, but you could find me website, post podcast, YouTube, all of it's financially savvy in 20 minutes. And the books are all on Amazon and on the website as well. But uh, one of the I'm really excited is one of the workshops in February. It's um, share your idea. So for those people that are writing a book that are trying to pitch their business that want to become TEDx speakers as well, that kind of thing. I'm actually going to walk them through a workshop with that because I think that's one of the most difficulties is a lot of people don't know how to communicate what they want to say. And so I'm excited about that because that's how you make more money as well. When you know exactly straight to the point and, and people can see that. So, and all my Instagram is saying the same thing. So thank you so much for having me on. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Vicki, Julian, Kirsten, and Natalie. That's a wrap. Oh, my God. Thank you guys so much. That was so much fun. Love it. You guys are great. I'm excited to see this one come out. Yes, yeah. this, and this is going to come out. So this is next week, right? Because I think Martin Luther King Day is Monday. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to edit yeah. this up this week. 
and drop it next week. And I think people will really enjoy it. And I think we need the right now is such a, as you guys know, just everything going on. I know people get overwhelmed, but I feel like we have to talk this out. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think we really made, I think we ran this around the track in a, in a way that I haven't seen in the fire community to date. Uh, I really appreciate it. I'm part of a group called Socially Conscious Fire. I don't know if any of you know of that subculture and the subculture and the subculture. Um, but that's where people are grappling with this, mm. you know, with the, with the edge between justice and capitalism and fire and, you know, and I so appreciate the grapple. Um, I would recommend you checking them out. If I may, um, I just want to give you some perspective. So last week, obviously, after the situation at the Capitol, uh, we got uh, tons of DMs from people, right? Um, but we just had a moment, right? The next, I think we posted or tweeted something um, to the effect of saying, it must be nice to be white. And um, a lot of people responded to that. But the next day, we got an email from a guy who, uh, a black guy, um, who just thanked us for um, just kind of saying it. And um, I, I got to tell you, it was a moment for us because... Um, like that's not something that you know to Nally's point like I understand why certain people would be afraid to sort of speak their mind because the reality is you can be for lack of a better word blackballed um, and lose very real opportunities yeah. um, but it was a moment for me because I realized that that was still an issue I've left the corporate world I've le- you know like I realized how much of a bubble of freedom that I live in, right? The fact that I can afford to just say how I feel and not really worry about someone taking away an opportunity for me. Um, But anyway, I just say that to say that we've made progress, but the reality is that like the person that sent it to me was someone else that actually has a platform, right? And is still Uh afraid to uh, speak out, to say things, right? They're just afraid. my old boss is a vice president who is like on Twitter, I'm sorry, on Facebook, writing in this dorky coded language because he doesn't want to, um, I, he literally said, I can't say this because I am a corporate corporate executive. Now, if you can't speak your mind Mm -hmm. on that day, yeah. Think where about are it. you? Yeah. Where exactly. are you? Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so in, I say all that to say there's a lot of work to be done. Even those of us who have platforms still feel muted. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. so in addition to this just being a really healthy conversation, my hope uh, is that it also inspires other people who have platforms, other hosts of podcasts to not be afraid to go as deep as you always do, Doc. It's great. I expect this from you, um, (laughs) but I want more of that, right? I want more of that. Like Vicky should not be, I mean, Vicky saying, Vicky being excited by this is in a way sad, right? Yeah. In a way what? Sad. It's sad that that this excites you. Um, (laughs) This this should be the norm, norm, in in my opinion. So there's a lot, a lot, a lot of work to be done. Um, all of us, even today, we were editing a chapter and we were like sort of gauging whether or not, you know, like, do we go there? Do we imply this thing, etc. So, um, you know, that's part of the reason why our mission was really just to inspire better conversations about money, more holistic conversations mm. about money. Um, and so anyway, I didn't say that to like pub what we're doing, but I'm just Gen, you know, one, we don't have this many of these kinds of conversations either, and we hope that we can continue to do more. We'll obviously do our part to uh, promote it. Um, but yeah, just keep on, keep on fighting the good fight, y'all. Yeah, and keep building bridges. Like I'm yes. looking forward yeah. to MLK Day because it's yeah. timely. One, based off of everything yeah. that we just went through, but because. Raphael Warnock and MLK are very similar in personality. Mm -hmm. And so I look forward to challenging people like, Mm -hmm. you know, how can you how can you celebrate MLK, but be against, you know, this candidate in Georgia who is doing things at a scalable level? Like, yeah, I'm ready. Got my boxing gloves on. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. That's that's important. What all of you are doing, it's 
you know, yeah, sometimes I don't even know what I'm going to say. Even I'm, I always get freaked out when a, a podcast comes out interview because I'm like, what did I say? It's like my body left me. <laughs> and then, you know, and then it, you go back thinking like, oh, why did I say that? Or, you know, nah, he was it, preaching it, on this one. I think it's going to be a good one. <laughs> thank you. I thank you. And it's, it's part of that, you know, like last few years, honestly, not since he since Trump got elected, I I would never I would never talk about being an immigrant. I mean, I people knew I was technically or assumed Whoa. it. But I would never because I was already shunned so much. And then mm-hmm. when I started telling people I'm an immigrant refugee, that's a whole nother level. Mm-hmm. Um, I never would say that until literally three years ago. And so um, it's allowed me to be that platform. But it's scary. It's always scary. And I mm-hmm. thank you for saying what you said and getting that saying what you're saying, you know, having that privilege. Um, it, it gives me a little more courage. And so I'm not I'm not as scared to say something. And and if I regret it later, at least I know it was at least that one person needed to hear it. So thank That's you so right. much for saying that. Thank you for having us. This was awesome. Oh, this was yeah. my pleasure. This is my whole reason for this platform um, is that we can go deeper on stuff. And and sometimes it's hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. I'm really thrilled. I th- I, part of what I'm writing in this book is about uh, the the fact that that if we can't say something, then we can't see it. That's right. Mm-hmm. You know, and so basically it's the, it's the task of seeing, Yes. you know, and seeing, you know, like to see more clearly, to act courageously based on what you see. But I think that, you know, we're a little bit Emperor's New Clothes um, situation here. Mm -hmm. And so like, I take courage from this. I will take courage from all of you. I will celebrate you as you come forward in your courage uh, I believe in you. You are awesome. Aww. So thank you. Really. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you, Vicky. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.